All right, Richard, I read, I wrote a little brief intro to some of the particular details of the making of KRP, which I think just will maybe save us more time for discussion of relevant KRP issues. It sounds great. I can't wait. Okay. I'm just going to launch in and we'll begin. WKRP in Cincinnati was created by Hugh Wilson, who was a former ad man who had sold spots to Atlanta top 40 radio stations in the late 60s and 70s. Wilson parlayed a friendship with the television producer Jay Tarses into an entry-level job at MTM, the production company run by Grant Tinker for Mary Tyler Moore. Since, as Wilson has remembered, people were somewhat afraid to ask a then 30-year-old production assistant to fetch coffee, he was largely left alone to observe the making of sitcoms such as The Bob Newhart Show and The Tony Randall Show that MTM was producing. It was actually Tony Randall who handed down what Wilson remembered as an essential bit of sitcom wisdom. Randall told Wilson that every time any character entered any scene in a sitcom, it was absolutely essential that the actor understand totally and completely the motivation and emotional place that their character was in in that moment. The idea being, as Wilson remembered it, that in this short-form medium of television, instantaneous recognition by an audience of where exactly a character's head is at in a given moment takes place on an almost cellular level, and that because it was television, attention was sometimes not paid to such acting truisms. WKRP was the very first show that Wilson ever pitched and created, and it was based largely on his familiarity with the staff of a radio station called WQXI in Atlanta. The character of Bailey Quarters was based on Wilson's wife, Charters Smith. Cincinnati was chosen as the location for the fictional radio station for the avoidance of any regional dialects. WKRP in Cincinnati premiered on September 18, 1978 on CBS, It aired for four seasons and 90 episodes, completing its run in April of 1982. Starting in the middle of the second season, however, CBS started moving the show around its schedule, contributing, in Wilson's mind, to lower ratings and its eventual cancellation. But when KRP went into syndication in the 1980s, it became an unexpected success. In fact, it became one of the most popular sitcoms in syndication, and it outperformed many other programs that had been vastly more successful in their own primetime life, including most all of the other MTM Enterprises sitcoms. Richard, that's a little background on the making of WKRP in Cincinnati. I've learned a lot. In general, what were your thoughts upon revisiting WKRP in Cincinnati? When you watch a sitcom, maybe with any kind of TV show, you're going to get great episodes, you're going to get bad episodes, and you're going to get a lot of sort of middle of the road stuff that's in between in varying degrees. Mm -hmm. So when I go back and I get the opportunity to screen some old sitcom, what I like to do is think on the whole, is this a good watchable show where I'm not necessarily going to love every episode, but there's enough here that it's worth revisiting and recommending to people. And my answer is, this is a good show. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really, I'm not going to say pleasantly surprised because I think everyone pretty universally has a soft spot or a fond place for WKRP in their television memories, certainly of people of our age. But I was pleasantly surprised, I guess, by, as you said, 
the quality of the quality episodes to me was several cuts above the norm for sitcoms of its era. And I thought it had a pretty biting and funny countercultural bent at a time when that was not what was the norm in sitcoms. KRP, once you get into season three and four, I'm afraid seems to run into more kind of bad episodes than good or superlative, I would say. I think that the sheer number of episodes they were making each year probably contributed to that. I watched a couple of the television foundation interviews with Hugh Wilson, and he was saying the pace just became insane. Really, I think it was, he might have said in the middle of season two or after season two. I think he said season three you know, where they just would show up at table reads and really have blank pages. And so they'd have to really scramble. And that's probably where some of that fall off happens. But certainly in the first two seasons, I mean, there are amazing episodes and surprising episodes. I really enjoyed kind of hearing from everyone who was involved in the making of and hearing from Hugh Wilson, who's, I guess I like outsider TV people, you know, people who kind of found their way into the business as he did. Uh, at a time when I think you could do that a little bit more easily than perhaps now. Yeah. And the other thing I'll add is, you know, as far as sort of looking at the overall quality of the episodes on an arc, you know, the first eight episodes or so came out on CBS. CBS wasn't wasn't entirely with, happy with the show. And so they put it on a hiatus for a few weeks. Now, Hugh Wilson and other people claim that they sort of, sat around for a few weeks waiting to figure out whether they were on hiatus or they were actually canceled. The show eventually came back in January of 1978 um, with kind of a clip show to try and tell whoever the audience was, if you haven't seen this before, this is what the show is about. Mm -hmm. And as I said, Hugh Wilson and others claimed that they didn't make anything except cosmetic changes to the show. They restructured the format of show with a cold open and a shorter, you know, video opening sequence after that. Um, But other than that, they said they didn't change anything. Personally, I think the shows get better after that hiatus. Um, So whatever Mm. was going on with the writers, uh, it it took that first half of the year for the shows to really get a good rhythm for the ensemble to come together, for the writers to start um, as Hugh Wilson himself said, for the writers to start chasing the character instead of the mm-hmm. actor trying to chase what the writers were trying to do. Um, yeah, it's such a good point. Yeah, and I think he had a funny anecdote where he said, you know, he, he had so many stories that I really appreciated across his career uh, about using what in the business we call producer tricks, which is, you know, when you're dealing with a network or you're dealing with Uh, a studio or you're dealing with people in a position of financial power over you and your creative efforts, naturally there's an inherent tension between those two. And there should be, I'm of the mind and I've always been that, you know, no production company, no show should be really allowed to just do whatever the hell they want because that pretty quickly tips over into self-indulgence. And oftentimes the creative tension between what a network is pushing you to do and what you and your creative team wants to do is really where the best work comes from. But it was funny that he said in that hiatus, they basically just sat around and didn't do much. And as you mentioned, he says 
all they really did was change the date written on scripts that had already been written prior to the network, giving them all of these notes about what they thought they should and shouldn't be doing. And so when they resubmitted the scripts, the network presumed those were all the fruit of this conversation and this brief hiatus when in fact they didn't really change anything. And I think like most sitcoms, of course, it takes everyone half a season to, to get somewhere, to figure out the rhythm and where the characters can go and, and what these actors are capable of. Now, starting with an episode that you would watch if anyone tunes in to watch KRP, I think the first thing that we're usually struck by is the theme, the opening theme. Of course, we have two themes. That opening theme is forever. That's one of the greatest TV theme songs of all time. Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me, I'm living on the air in Cincinnati, Cincinnati WKRP. Everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. I love the production of the theme. I love the instrumentation. I love the device of driving and spinning the dial and the little funny snippets of diegetic radio commentary that you hear. Mm -hmm. And I love particularly the way the theme morphs from a sort of mono sounding AM car stereo into a full stereo recording as the lyrics kick in. It's so good. It always will be good. And it's bizarrely paired with one of the raggiest looking visual cold opens <laughs> in sitcom history, which is just bizarre to me that that was never fixed. Yeah. The other thing I'll add about the theme is actually the not only is it just a great catchy song that's very much of its era as far as the instrumentation. I also love that somebody was clever enough that right at the end of that song where that where the uh, the notes go up a little bit mm-hmm. and that I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. I mean, that is borrowed, <laughs> obviously, from a radio mm-hmm. bumper type of uh, composition mm-hmm. of that era. And it's just a, it's just, the whole thing is just perfect. Do you detect a little glockenspiel in the KRP <laughs> theme? I think I hear a little glockenspiel. We'll have to listen to it again. It's got a really funky bass track. It's got a really nice guitar filigree that comes in and economical lyrics. I mean, I'm just such a fan of the type of writing that allows you to tell such a pretty involved story in what, like 10 lines of dialogue in the song. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the lyrics were written by Hugh Wilson. They were written by the show. That's right. Wasn't necessarily a music guy. No, and it's funny, I was, I was talking to my friend Ben uh, the other day, who's a super listener of the pod, and he reminded me, of course, I've forgotten this, he reminded me that I guess we once had a, a heated discussion where his contention 
was that the KRP theme song is clearly about Andy Travis, the Andy right. Travis character. Yeah. <laughs> Don't jump in before you've heard the argument yet, Rick. You may, you may regret being so quick to pull the trigger. Apparently, I was taking a contrary position. I know. Shocker. As I said to him, I was like, Ben, not only do I not even remember taking such a contrary position to that, because when he texted me, I think he texted me and he said, are you going to get into the whole debate you had with me over whether the <laughs> KRP theme song. And I said, why are you laboring under the assumption that it's not about and- the Andy Travis character? And he immediately texts me back with like all caps, like, what are you talking about? You spent 30 minutes telling me it wasn't. And I was like, man, I don't even remember that. But, you know, kind of shame on you for thinking that I would take a very hardline position on something I don't really know anything about. However, uh-huh. however, yes, because he brought it up, of course, I had to go back to the lyrics. Now, it's pretty clear the song is about the nomadic radio life. It is not just about the Andy Travis character. Because if you read the lyrics, it very clearly says, I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. Andy Travis is not an on-air personality. So that is meant to indicate the nomadic disc jockey life represented by the Venus flytrap and the Johnny Fever characters, both of whom... In their character development, you hear many times about all the various stops they've made, indeed, up and down the dial. Now, at the end of the song, the closing line, which you just referenced, says, uh, I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. It doesn't say I'm on WKRP in Cincinnati. I believe that has to be a specific choice. The use of the word at, I think, does include the Travis character, because really, other than the other than the, the jockeys and Travis, everyone else is not a nomadic character. So I do think the song is meant to evoke all of the persons who, leave, who, who lead a nomadic radio life. Yes, I think that's, it's fair that you could extend the narrative out to either other characters in the show or anybody who's sort of in that you picture working in the radio universe. I just think that when the show was initially drawn up, it was intended to be, it was intended that Gary Sandy as Andy Travis was going to be the lead character. In the opening credits, there's only two actors who get cast credit and one of them is Gary Sandy. And it wasn't again until after this hiatus period that the show really came together as an ensemble piece versus the story of Andy Travis and all the, you know, the zoo full of crazy, crazy characters that he has to deal with every day at work. Gary Sandy and Gordon Jump are the only two people listed in the opening credits starring Gary Sandy, starring Gordon Jump. I looked up their credits. Neither of them really were a get at the time where you would think they, they merited being, being listed as the two stars. It's very clear, I think, when you listen to the studio audience reaction, who the stars are in their mind. And I think that Johnny Fever gets a lot of the biggest laughs. Les Nessman gets a lot of the biggest laughs. And, and Jennifer Marlowe gets a lot of the biggest laughs. Travis... Mr. Carlson and the rest of them play important parts, but they don't get those, those, those audience favorite moments. Do you feel you can feel that they are audience favorites in some of the studio reactions? Yeah. And although, you know, you'd have to go back and kind of revisit it in, in real time. It just seems like 
Howard Hessman as Donnie Fever and Lonnie Anderson, neither of them were particularly well known before the show began, but they seem to become immediately, you know, breakout stars mm-hmm. on the show from the from almost the beginning. Yeah. I think Lonnie even had a bit of a holdout, uh, Wilson said in one of his interviews. Did you hear that? No. So I think it might have been around season two. It's not like she held the show hostage or anything, but I think there was a moment where maybe in some type of a renegotiation, you know, she and her agents were playing to the reality of what had occurred. I mean, I think this happens a lot in shows, right, where you have people that are signed to certain types of deals and whether her deal was up and she needed to renew or whether her agents correctly had assessed the situation and said, this is a breakout character. You know, you need to pay her a little better than you had originally agreed to. I don't know. Uh, But he says that there was a brief moment with that and then they got it resolved and then had nothing but great things to say really about everyone on the cast. I mean, he's very, I think when you listen to Hugh Wilson's interviews, you can tell he's pretty much a straight shooter. He cuts through a lot of the TV bullshit and he, I think, would call it like it is with even his own cast members if it wasn't what it was, which was a pretty harmonious and fun family. It sounds like they had a great time making the show. You definitely would get that impression. The other thing I'd say about, again, this sort of goes back a, a few minutes to the theme song and the, uh, the lead, of the, who's the lead of the show here is my understanding is that Hugh Wilson cast everybody in the show with the exception of the Andy Travis character. Gary Sandy came off of a CBS soap opera and the CBS wanted him and he sort of agreed to that, you know, with the caveat that he was going to have control over the rest of the cast. So there's something going on at CBS, at CBS where they thought that this this actor was familiar enough with people who, who were watching their network um, that he that they were going to make a TV, a, a primetime star out of Gary Sandy. Mm. The result being that while we can talk about whether or not you like Gary Sandy or whether or not you like that character, is in, it is interesting that his role as being the straight man in an ensemble piece that he had to, or rather the writers had to adapt to, making him a part of it instead of making him a star. And this is comparable to other shows at the time where whether it was Linda Lavin on Alice or Hal mm-hmm. Linden on Barney Miller. Taxi. Taxi, Judd Hirsch. None of these characters mm-hmm. are all the lead character, but they're not necessarily the funny character or the breakout character. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, in a way, it works out perfectly fine. I think if, if, if Gary Sandy or Andy Travis had been more of a dominant character, I'm not sure it would have left the room that is left for the Herb Tarlick, Les Nessman, Jennifer Marlowe, Johnny Fever, you know, the big guy, all the other characters. I mean, all the moments that all the other characters have kind of require that he be a fairly benign presence in the entourage. And yeah, well, again, he's uh, Andy Travis is the zookeeper. He's the yeah. guy who's the moderator between the the young characters on the show and the old timers or as uh, as a. Uh, uh, Herb Tarlick says in one episode, it's the suits versus the dungarees. <laughs> yeah, you know, you had sent me a funny text last night about your your personal conventional wisdom relative to cast and various topics connected to WKRP. And uh, you were using a 
in arrow system, right? Thumbs yeah, up. up, down, or sideways. Thumb down, up, down, or sideways, indicating. Uh, can you walk me through your ratings here? Your rating system before we get yeah. to this. So this is this. It's a rating system that I actually uh, kind of lifted from Newsweek magazine back in the nineties. They used to have a. a they used I used to subscribe, you know, get the actual magazine of course you did. in yes. the mail. <laughs> and they used to have this feature in there called conventional wisdom. And it would okay. it would sort of tell you in in what was going on in politics, usually like it would say sure. Bill Clinton's, you know, domestic policy agenda. And then it would tell you whether it was an whether it was up, down, or sideways. Right. And then you were supposed to shake your head and go, oh, I guess what Newsweek says is right. This is this is exactly how I feel about it. It's the conventional wisdom. I wanted to figure out where was I at with this character when I was 12 versus where I'm at with this character when I'm not 12. <laughs> right. And we don't have the benefit of your handwritten analysis as we did in the Star Trek episode from actual <laughs> age 12. So we don't know if your ratings, your personal conventional wisdom. I mean, again, Newsweek is kind of doing a like a group. I mean, conventional wisdom is the wisdom of the group. Yeah. So this this is a bit of a misnomer because these are your own personal assessments for who's up, who's down and who's neutral. Right. So this is not this is not technically conventional wisdom. Okay. This is more what I would call my personal wisdom. Okay. So you gave Andy Travis an up. What was the what's the reason for that? Is that based off sort of a renewed analysis of something you thought you thought? No, in this case, he he also would have been an up era up era when this show was live on TV. I always liked the character mm -hmm. and he hasn't changed in my mind as far as as far as he hasn't gone from up to anything else. If anything, I think he's a little bit improved in my mind because I just think that he turns out to be, well, first of all, he's gorgeous to look at. <laughs> Is he? Sure. Wow. Okay. It's, it's, it's so funny the way that what they have, how they dress this guy to try to make him into a 1980s, 1979 sex symbol. I guess so. Yeah. Really trying to push, push the, the sex with uh, Gary Sandy in my mind. But, well, but well, hold on. They, they never give him any storylines that would that would indicate that, though. Uh, he does have a first season episode where there, there's an old girlfriend who comes back to town, which, again, going back to your notes on the theme song that yes. that I think that that theme song actually might be tied to that actual mm. episode. Right. Anyway, the old girlfriend comes back to town and it's not a very good episode, but in, in any case, I think that I like Andy's character here. I think that he is convincing as the moderator between the gen, you know, the, the two generations in conflict with each other. I think he's a, he's a good enough actor to pull off this character. And uh, I just, I just think he's very likable. He's likable. I, I put him in the neutral position using your, your analysis, just because, uh, you know, as a, as a delivery system for the hair and the, the plaid shirts and the jeans. Sure. He works economically well. He is perfectly cast as that kind of neutral presence. It is funny that the network sort of thought, I guess, either just assumed he was palatable to the CBS audience or thought he was going to be some kind of a star. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, he's, he doesn't, he, he's not the reason to watch the show. Let's put it that way. I agree. Mr. Carlson, you also gave a thumbs up too. Right. And I think this might be a I might have gone from <laughs> down to up on uh, Gordon jump as Arthur Carlson. <laughs> now when I was a kid. I thought he was a boring character. Right. Cause he was an old white guy. Yes. 
I had no memory until watching this show this time around how much physical comedy Gordon Jump is given to do. I mean, he is not just sort of a, a goofy, unfocused guy. They also give him a ton of stuff to do. Did you watch the episode with the the raft up on top of his desk? Brilliant. I mean, he's a completely brilliant, gifted, physical actor. Absolutely. Yeah, there's just so many scenes where he where stuff is flying through the air. You know, it's it's a very maybe a little you know slapstick, but uh, in addition to him again being a you know a highly likable moral character, I love the physical comedy. Yeah, he's absolutely. I agree with you. I think it gets a little much for me as I watch, I binge watch a bunch of episodes. I think that's probably normal. I think if you were, you have to think about the show in the context of when it was on TV, when you would be watching it as opposed to watching several hours at a clip, because I think a sitcom like this, watching several hours at a clip, it is going to become repetitive, but putting it back in the context of it's on once a week, or even if it's on in syndication, I think it becomes a lot easier to take that sort of very broad physical comedy, which, which Mr. Carlson does. Uh, but yeah, anytime he's fumbling with architectural plans or fishing lures or, you know, acting dumb, which is, I don't want to use the term, it's hard to do, but you have to be smart to act dumb. Although I'm looking at my ratings, I put Mr. Carlson in neutral. And I think that's because I was just, just had watched a lot of it. So I think that the the physical broadness, you know, was okay for me, but this watch through, as my next rating will indicate uh, where we have our, where we have a difference here uh, is in the character of Jennifer Marlowe, who you were neutral on this time. Interesting. Tell me about that. Yeah. So this one is another one I think probably changed because, uh, I liked the character when I was a kid and seeing it in the context of, uh, of adulthood, I see that Lonnie Anderson is not really a strong actress, but she's strong when they, when they, when they get her in the, when they get her in the pocket of that character, when they keep her sort of imperious and mysterious, she She's really good, or I should say the character is really good. What happens too often is they try to stretch the character into storylines where they give her too much vulnerability. There was, I was reading, one of the writers was talking about the difficulty of writing a, an episode in which Jennifer was a centerpiece because the second they took her kind of off her, uh, off her podium, she became vulnerable and less interesting. Uh, and again, this is kind of goes back to what you were saying about the Mr. Carlson character, that if you see it too much in a row, you begin to kind of think, well, this character lacks consistency. And that's really the only reason why I kind of made her sideways uh, in, my, in my rating system is because they don't keep that character good enough on an episode by episode basis. When she's, when they, when they use her correctly, she's awesome. Uh, but when we get into her love life um, mm. uh, or some other n- not very well-conceived stories around Herb, 
uh, which we'll get into in a second, mm-hmm. the character fall, falls off a little bit for me. And I think when she's not doing her sort of thing of sitting at her desk and and being the mother and the queen of the office, uh, she uh, she suffers a little bit in terms of Lonnie Anderson's acting. So what you're saying is, in your mind, you think women should stick to just being secretaries and not try to have fully formed lives outside the office. No, I, but I do think that <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> I think Jennifer should not be overexposed as a character on the show. She's great. You know what? Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I I. I had a different take. I kind of came away with this being very, very impressed with Lonnie Anderson's acting chops in a sitcom environment. I do agree with you that when they take the character into different places, it worked less well, but I'm not sure I would tick that up to her acting ability per se. I I just think particularly through season one, her comic timing is impeccable. It's the best comic timing of almost anyone in the cast. I agree with that. Uh, if you if you watch and listen for things like, this isn't, isn't something that gets mentioned a lot in, in as an acting skill, but it really is a skill. And you can see some of the other actors struggle with this. When you're filming in front of a live audience, having an intuitive understanding of the applause break and when it's going to end and when you can jump in with your next line is something that frequently Gary Sandy uh, has trouble with, for example, Herb Tarlick has trouble with a little bit sometimes, but Richard Sanders, Lonnie Anderson, Howard Hessman, Gordon Jump, people that kind of have the chops intuitively wait for those applause breaks before they begin speaking. And her comedic timing and her, this sense that she can exude of self-possession, you know, of knowing her worth in a role that really in any other show is a complete throwaway blonde bimbo role. And I'm not so sure that that wasn't the role maybe Hugh Wilson and everyone thought they were getting. Um, didn't really hear a lot about the development of the character and how much how much of it was on the page right away. I guess probably some because they do reference to things like she's the highest paid employee at the station and very early in season one, she lets Mr. Carlson know, you know, I don't get coffee. I don't perform some of these demeaning secretarial assistant roles. But I was really, really impressed with her comedic chops and performance. Uh, even as I would agree with you that I think in some of the, 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 the Jennifer episodes, works less good. But I'd also say, you know what? Almost all of the individual character episodes work less good because that's not really what we're there for. I agree. We'll get into that a little bit later. I'd like to talk about the things that make a great KRP episode. Yes. Um, and ensemble versus individual Indeed. stories is, is one of the things. But you're almost convincing me to uh, shift my Jennifer Marlowe <laughs> rating to an up instead of a sideways. Well, listen, you know, your ratings are your own. I don't want to, you know, I, I, can, I can exert a powerful, influential field. So, now, Bailey Quarters, we, you had a down arrow for Bailey, as did I. What was, the, what was behind your down arrow in this viewing of KRP and the Bailey Quarters character? I found in, in viewing this show again that I was consistently searching for what is this person doing here? I understood that she was supposed to be the young person in the office. She was the one who was starting her career, defining her career. But she, her acting 
is a strange and her characterization is B strange. And it just mm-hmm. never really gelled for me. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't really, I haven't seen Jan Smithers and anything else to say whether I think yeah. this, how much of this was uh, direction of her acting versus ability of her acting. I don't dislike the character at all. I just feel like she, she always just feels like uh, an oddity in the middle of the story. So you know, when I when I give somebody when I give this character a down arrow, Jason, I'm not saying that I hate watching them. I'm just saying that compared to the other work in the show, uh, this one it doesn't just does not impress me as much. Now, I was under the impression that you, at least when you were your younger self, that you were a big Bailey Quarters guy. I am, and always will be a big Bailey Quarters guy. However, and yet a down arrow. Well, again, a down arrow because much in the same way that I think you were watching the show, I think this time I'm watching the show with a lot more understanding and appreciation for what really good sitcom construction, directing, writing, and acting is. And as I'm watching this ensemble cast, I'm seeing just really, really superlative work from a lot of people that is why the show is what it is. And Jan Smithers is perfectly cast in a way As Hugh Wilson says, there was another actor who was up for the part who was very good at playing shy. He said in his interview, Jan Smithers is shy, and that's why they cast her. Now, Jan Smithers has kind of an interesting career because I I wasn't aware of this, but her acting career started because she was on the cover of your favorite magazine, Newsweek, in 1966. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't, see the, I didn't see, I read the story. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So she, there was an article that was about youth culture, you know, in the sixties. And there's a brilliant photograph of her riding on the back of a motorcycle that was uh, taken by a photographer who was following a group of teens in uh, California, in Los Angeles, California. So that was in March of 1966. And right after that, she started getting offers from uh, to be in advertisements and other things because she was strikingly beautiful. And so that's kind of how it launched. And I agree with you. There's always kind of a feeling of that. There's just, I don't know if there, if it's not there in the actor or if perhaps in the ensemble, you know, you, you can only have as much Bailey as they decided to have. She certainly gets a couple of her own episodes in the way everyone does. And I think actually acquits herself pretty well, if not better than most of the other characters do when they're in single focused storyline episodes. Like, you know, the episode where Bailey sort of gets the opportunity to produce her own public affairs segment and all the freaks and the weirdos turn out. There's more Bailey there. And I think it, it, it comes across pretty well. But it's such a delicate balance, right? Like you have all of these characters and personalities. You can't have six or seven alpha characters. You have to have some people that I think recede a little bit into the background in order for the thing to work. Now, I when I posted on, on Twitter a couple of questions about KRP and people were indicating, you know, the various things that they were interested in. Of course, people met, you know, I posted a thing about the theme and whether people thought the theme was specific to the Andy Travis character or more generally about uh, the the jocks or both. And the winning, the winning answer with the most votes was both. 
just just to let you know what the conventional wisdom on Twitter is for whatever that's worth. Interesting. There was a super listener of the pod who did say, I'm not going to name this person because I don't want to shame them in any way, but there was a person, a super listener of the pod who said, I hope you're going to get into Bailey versus Jennifer, ah. which uh, you're probably aware is, I guess, one of the unfortunate like leftovers of this series is that men found it necessary to stake a claim to either Jennifer or Bailey in terms of a sexual or romantic attraction. Mm. Right. Okay. And I found myself resisting that, that polling because of my appreciation, I think for both of these performers and particularly Lonnie Anderson's performance. And I know that's what the show sets up, right? It sets up this kind of dynamic where, either you're supposedly a Jennifer man or a Bailey man. And as you say, that was my preference was, was to be a Bailey man, but it seems reductive to me to engage in that now. I don't know how you feel about that sort of, uh, that sort of sexist polling, let's say. Well, I think that uh, we can talk a long time about sexism in this show. And if that was the, the product of the time, it doesn't surprise me at all that there was a, a competition between which two of these actresses was hotter or whatever. I do think it's really interesting the, the, you know, the show is set up with eight characters. And if you look at the structure of the ensemble, there are all the characters are paired in a way. So Travis and Carlson are mm. a pair, Fever and Venus are a pair, Herb and Les are a pair, and then the two women. And I had the opportunity, this was great to that over the last few weeks, I've had the opportunity to watch this show with my husband, Dr. C. Mm-hmm. He's never seen it before. <laughs> I love it. I so love when Dr. Was, C is being exposed to these things through you. It's perfect. Yeah. So I was getting all of this both positive and negative feedback on the show. You know, this is like, you know, basically field research for the yes. uh, full cast and crew <laughs> podcast. Our test well, audience, our, our, yes. our comp- somehow a completely untouched audience member exists who has <laughs> never, never seen, seen the show. He's never seen any of the things we talk about on the pod. And he's, he's completely <laughs> exposed to these in real time. You actually do get to perform fascinating experiments on an audience member who is completely a blank slate. Right. And in this particular case, mm-hmm. uh, in regard to Jennifer and Bailey, he was particularly impressed that the writer's made a friendship of these two. As That's a very good point. Instead of making it into a competition, you know, for a yes. competition for the men, that the two of these, that the, that the, these characters back each other up. A That's lot a great of times, point. A lot of times it's Jennifer pushing Bailey, you know, mm-hmm. out of her shell. Sometimes it's, it's Bailey trying to protect Jennifer from Herb or mm-hmm. other lechers that may come into the episode. Mm-hmm. And so you know, from a pure sort of like sex object point of view, these two could not be more diametrically different from each other. But in terms of characterizations on the show, they are, they are a pair. And again, it just adds to the whole, the family mix that these, that, that characters on this show, they're in a workplace, but they're all, they're all friends and family with each other. TV and movies in general and pop culture in general has such a history of wanting to pit women versus women more than we want to pit men versus men. And you can see this in a lot of the coverage of things like uh, Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine, perhaps not seeing eye to eye on the set. Terms of endearment. Terms of endearment. Thank you. 
which we did on the pod. I have a bad habit recently, which super listener Stacy has pointed out to hilarious effect that I've mentioned in recent episodes, two completely fictional full cast and crew episodes that actually don't exist that I thought we had done. <laughs> so I think I referenced like uh, that, that we had a mask episode. I think when I was doing my Bogdanovich targets episode with Joseph Schneider, I mentioned that we had done mask on the pod. Of course we hadn't. What happened was we had prepared to do mask on the pod with frequent guest Ted Jessup, and then we just never did it. So I guess Chris and I had prepared and watched mask and were doing the backstory and the research of mask, but we never actually taped the episode. And then I did it with another film as well, uh, which just completely, I made up in my mind that we did an episode on, but anyway, you're right. It is impressive. It's among the many impressive things. I think the counterculture of things that I think the show gets right that I referenced earlier, that they don't pit Bailey and Jennifer against each other. And I guess the sort of stereotypical red-blooded male, you know, Bailey versus Jennifer, which one would you choose argument kind of stems from the fact that both are incredibly attractive and beautiful people. Like Bailey Quarters is not a mousy looking person. Uh, Jan Smithers is incredibly beautiful and it's how they dress the character and the weird things they do with her hair that sort of, and the shy demeanor that I think contribute the, the mousy stereotype, even though she's clearly gorgeous and as is Lonnie Anderson. And they do have fun with the stereotypes that they present both of them in. So I like the Bailey quarters character. I think it's a great and kind of almost innovative character in a way uh, that I enjoy watching, but the, and this is no slam on Jan uh, herself because let's be honest, like she didn't really have a long career. I think she stopped acting in the mid eighties uh, once she married James Brolin. I think she was married to James Brolin for quite a while. I had and, no idea. Yeah. She was married to James Brolin for about 10 years and she, you know, hasn't really been in the business since 1987. So I always think that's kind of a sign of intelligence sometimes in an actor that if you get out, you know, you find something else more worthwhile to do with your life. Maybe that's what occurred with her. Now you mentioned the pairing is such a great thing. I hadn't really thought of that. So the two uh, DJs, you were, you were up on both Johnny and Venus. Tell me about that. Well, looking into the kind of the backstory of the way this show was cast, it's interesting that Howard Hesman as Fever, I think, was maybe the third guy that they wanted to cast in this show. Uh, I think CBS had somebody they wanted, and Hugh Wilson had somebody else in mind. And there were a couple other character actors, actually. Uh, I'm not I'm drawing a blank on who they are right now, but you might might be fun to go back and and post it on the Instagram to, um, you know, the mm-hmm. the uh, uh, what the other casting choices were. But as far as Howard Hesman playing this Dr. Johnny Fever character, you'd be hard pressed anywhere in sitcom history to find an alignment of an actor and a character that is as tight as what's delivered on this show. He's absolutely perfect in his lethargy, <laughs> his burned out hippie thing. His cowardice. His, yeah, his his <laughs> delivery, everything is great. There's yeah. a reason why he was a breakout character from this show after being a guy who kind of w- bounced around in uh, episodic television through the 1970s, and this show made him a star. He's great, uh, and his character is great. It's funny. It's sympathetic. 
I I really I really like the Johnny Fever character, and I always have. I totally agree with you. I was I gave Howard in our little uh, thing. I, I gave uh, the Johnny Fever character two up arrows, which I stole oh, from you. I, I stole from you because I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gave well, you gave only one concept related to this discussion too. I won't spoil what it is, but um, I stole that from you, and I used it when I was particularly re-impressed, if that's a word. You know, where I where I watch it this time, I gave that to Lonnie Anderson and Jennifer's character. I'm giving it to Johnny Fever as well because Hessman was so perfect from the very first moment. I mean. The very first line the character utters are are so of a piece with, I think, what Hugh Wilson shared about the Tony Randall advice, you know, which is he always felt completely aware of where his character was supposed to be kind of mentally and in the space of the story at every single time. And in an otherwise, you know, in what could be kind of a throwaway burnout character, I think he finds so much more and it's in the unexpected places that it's most rewarding. Like the cowardice angle is such a funny thing to put into a character like that. The masculinity, like you mentioned, I mean, there's so many storylines where he's afraid of getting beat up or he's intimidated by someone. And it's such a funny wrinkle to put on this kind of character who is who is bravely portrayed as just a complete and utter loser and failure. (laughs) Yet we love this guy and his roguish charm and the sunglasses and the wardrobe and the the Black Death t-shirts. I mean, it's such a great character and such a great marriage of the two. I also couldn't think, agree more. Also think about, we were talking about Gordon Jump as a physical character. Gordon Jump yes. doing his sort of, you know, his one stooges routine in his office. <laughs> yes. yes. Howard Hessman is oh, yeah. also physical, but in the opposite direction. His mm-hmm. slouching, his sleeping, you know, falling. He's he's on the absolutely. The, he's on the the sofa in the office with a bunch of books. You know, books. It's amazing. Of- what an amazing shot. What an amazing thing to do, right? Yeah. He gets on the he gets on a he gets on the couch, which is completely covered <laughs> in various layers of boxes, books, and uncomfortable things. And he somehow just gets on top of this entire mess of stuff. <laughs> I think you're so right. Like it's the reverse physical comedy that he does so brilliantly. Well, rest in peace, Howard Hessman. You were a giant and a Titan in the sitcom industry. I mean, brilliant, brilliant characterization. Venus, we both agreed. Thumbs up. I was really impressed with Tim Reed. I mean, he's He's got a lot of interesting interviews that I, I went down this rabbit hole yesterday. He's had such a fascinating career that is one of those guys who his, his, his career runs through so many interesting, weird aspects of popular culture, like Richard Pryor, Jimi Hendrix, like all this 60s stuff. I wasn't even aware that he had a, comedy, a stand-up comedy routine, Tim and Tom with Tom Dreesen. And that's how he kind of ended up out in Los Angeles in an era when Richard Pryor and John Witherspoon and um, Paul Mooney, Robin Williams, and other people were just getting started at the comedy store in LA. And I think that's where Letterman, because I saw a clip where Letterman had Tim and Tom Dreesen on. I think they wrote a book about their experiences together as a comedy act in the mid sixties. And that must've been why. And they're a, they're a white black comedy act. Correct. They were the, they were the first 
white yeah. black comedy act, in fact. And it's, you know, so, so Letterman, of course, was a part of that stand up crowd in L.A. at the same time. So Leno, Letterman, Robin Williams, uh, Richard Pryor, they, you know, th- that's all of a piece of a comedy scene that was going on in L.A. And Tim Reed was a part of that. You know, Tim Reed talks about kind of seeing this character on the page and saying, you know, ah, I don't really want to do it like this. Monday morning, I get this call. Go read over at MTM for a new show. I go over in the room is everybody black. When they did casting at that time, no matter what the part called for, everybody black from eight to 80, blind, crippled or crazy, you were in the room. And so you name it, whoever wasn't working at that time was in the room. And uh, I looked at the script and it said, uh, he comes in with a big hat, ermine fur coat, and his first line was, yo mama. And I was like, oh no, not again. So I didn't read the sides. I was trying, I wanted to walk out and I said, no, I'll just sit here. I'm tired of this. I'm going to tell him what I think. So when they called me to go in, uh, I sat down and everybody was in the room, Grant Tinker, Jay Sanders, who was the pilot king and a bunch of people. And they asked me what I thought. I said, well, you know, I don't know that I would want to be 60 something years old and have somebody say, hey, Venus, fly trap. I said, that don't seem like the career that I was hoping for. And, and the producer and writer laughed. And I said, and besides, I, I come from a black community. And the guy said, the producer said, you know, Hugh Wilson, he said, you're right. He said, what do you think? I said, well, if a guy has a, a side, if he was coming from a different world, could show you a bit of the black community and what, how he grew up, but also this character, maybe it would work. He said, I agree, read it. I said, well, I haven't read it. He said, no, just read it. So I read it, I left. I knew I wasn't going to get it. And lo and behold, Hugh Wilson stood up for me and uh, made a trade. Uh, he, they wanted somebody uh, to play one of the leads. Hugh didn't want that person, wanted somebody else. So it was like a trade. He said, I tell you what, I'll give you that person if you give me Tim Reed. So it was like the Kareem Aldoub-Jabbar trade, <laughs> the Lakers. I mean, <laughs> I'll trade you this in a small family from Indiana. You know? But anyway, that's how, uh, that's how I got to be uh, being a slide trap and the rest is history. I think Tim Reed is one of those guys that's easy to overlook. And I was blown away last night watching the Frank's Place episode where the Tim Reed character who has relocated to New Orleans from uh, his previous life as an academic in the Northeast to take over a family restaurant and finds himself a fish out of water. And the show really daringly for 1987 or whenever it was takes on the concept of racism within the black community based on skin tone in New Orleans. And it's a really like complicated analysis and presentation of this thing in this otherwise very kind of visually interesting and daring single camera, very new at the time. You know, there weren't a lot of shows that sort of didn't have a laugh track, were shot pretty cinematically like a movie, and yet had comedy and had this social stuff that we're doing. Now, it didn't work, didn't find an audience, but it was a really interesting show and it's worth checking out. You can find at least that episode, if not a couple more online. And I, I plan to watch more Frank's Place because it's just one of those kind of interesting and weird outlier shows that contains a lot of great work. And it just reminds you that a lot of great things maybe didn't work for their time, but still feel really ahead of their time. And that's one of them. Yeah, it's interesting. You wonder if you could somehow magically uh, take Frank's Place out of 1987 and uh, drop it into 
a contemporary, you know, 2022 when you've had all of these sort of the interest in a show that has a predominantly black cast where the mm-hmm. characters are are taken seriously, even if it's a sitcom. Mm-hmm. There were lots of black sitcoms on TV in the 70s and 80s, but to take on class and race issues and to put them into a visual style, like you said, that that looked more cinematic, that looked more like uh, an episodic drama on TV. Mm-hmm. Seems like seems like they would work a lot better now than it did then. Tim Reed in KRP is both a story of what black actors had to and still have to deal with. And by the way, I was completely uh, blown away by the episode Who is Gordon Sims? Where, and, and I looked into it a little bit, this turns out to, I think, be the first time, and it's a 1978 episode, it's the first time a sitcom addressed issues relating to the Vietnam War. And it turns out that through a very sitcom-y setup, which is that I think it's uh, Bailey needs to take photographs of the DJs for use in a promotion. And Venus Flytrap does not want to be photographed and jumps through so many hoops to avoid it that it becomes an issue. And he finally tells Andy and Mr. Carlson that it's because he is a deserter from the army. And he deserted the army during the Vietnam War. Now, Mr. Carlson is kind of a, like less, right? He's kind of this patriotic, gung-ho, pro-America guy. I think you get a little hints of that from time to time. And it's actually one of the few times that Mr. Carlson's character is allowed to do a very serious turn because he is at first extremely upset with Venus that he would be a deserter. So then they go to a military base and this scene as filmed, which Tim Reed handles masterfully, uh, is one in which he tells a story that I was, it, it really took a left turn at the very end. I'm not going to ruin it for people. I don't know if you've seen this episode, but he tells a Vietnam story that has a gut punch left hook right at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And it's a brave and very realistic feeling story about cruelty, brutality, and uh, the mental toll of the Vietnam experience. In a WKRP episode, right? Like this is where we are, and it's a it's it's pretty heavy and well done. And for that alone, I was just like, "Wow, that is a fantastic episode." It's a great written episode. It doesn't even necessarily fit into my criteria of what's supposed to make a great episode of WKRP because it's so character no. focused on uh, on Venus. But yeah. the 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 result of it is really. Uh, impressive. The whole Mm -hmm. scene you're talking about with um, Tim Reed's kind of uh, storytelling monologue Mm. is, is really gripping. I also like that, that scene in the first act where you're talking about how Carlson is angry about hearing that Venus, his employee is a deserter from the army. And then Venus starts to turn and say, well, I'll see you guys later because he thinks that he's being fired. <laughs> right. And Carlson makes a pivot from saying, yeah. oh, you're, you're just going to run away again. Right, right. So 
He does it convincingly. He plays, he, even when he's doing his, even when he gets serious, he never abandons the character that he's playing. Did you see the turn coming in that story before it came, his Vietnam story, Venus's at the end? Absolutely not. And, and I remembered I mean, <laughs> it from a kid, but I didn't remember it being that serious. I mean, that floored me. I was like, I had to stop down. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, that is so real, right? And to not pull that punch in a sitcom episode, I, I find still impressive. Yeah. And I don't think that could have happened with any of the other characters. Like if it was Johnny who was a deserter, that would make a lot more sense in terms of the Johnny character being kind of presented with cowardice as such a essential thing. But it's Tim Reed, man. It's his gravitas and his acting chops and his storytelling ability. That's the best word that you used that really pulls that off. So I, I was really, really impressed with that. Now, Herb Tarlick, we both had a similar sideways feeling about, which is probably somewhat controversial. I think Herb Tarlick is one of the people, is one of the characters most beloved when, when most people talk. You and I were both feeling a bit more neutral. Why were you feeling a little more neutral about Frank Bonner's admittedly brilliant portrayal, iconic portrayal of Herb Tarlick? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious, like you say, it's an iconic character. And (laughs) I think that Frank Bonner is such a great actor inhabiting this character, you know, in -hmm. terms of the physicality, his his delivery. It's just it it in this day and age, it's because it becomes almost unwatchable. The the sexual harassment in the office between Herb and Jennifer, mm-hmm. and you want to, you 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 know you want to look at it in the context of the time and it was done, because it's not that it's not that Frank Bonner is is acting badly. It's that the the writers are are presenting an element of his character that is just so gross. And it keeps mm-hmm. coming back again and again. And it really can spoil the show, spoil an episode. I watched one the other night where Jennifer is starting to get fed up with Herb coming on to her all the time mm-hmm. in the office. And of course, in the context of the show, the men, the other men in the show, nobody ever comes to her defense Mm-hmm. Uh, of the way she's being treated by Herb in the office. And finally, it's Bailey who says, if you really want to get him off your back, you should go on a date with him. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's such a brilliant idea, too, because it does work. Well, when they get on the date, it's funny. I mean, Frank Bonner is, you know, He's when he, he doesn't know what to do. Right. When he when I mean, they're right that within the context of the show, when Herb is uh, when the, when Jennifer calls his bluff, he doesn't know what to do. And his delivery is fine. It's just yeah. it seems so weird and dated now. It's really hard to uh, it's really hard to accept it. So I, I get what you're saying. I mean, look, I, I don't I think I think you're more you're more apt to watch something now that was made then and sort of not be able to turn off your now glasses yeah. than I am. I, I am much more able to watch this and say, look, this is 1978. This is where we were. I mean, we are an incredibly backwards society in America. I hate to break it to all the listeners out there. <laughs> we are still an incredibly backwards society. We are not forward thinking and looking. And where we are now comparative to 1978, we've made a lot of progress, but this is just part and parcel of, of, of appreciating really any entertainment 
created by human beings who are essentially flawed and and going to be largely of their time. I mean, there are a few people who are creators who are not of any time and are thus timeless. But this is a sitcom made in 1978. And also, if you really wanted to be fair to the construct, I mean, do you think that the radio business, that the sales, that the ad sales business in the radio business was not worse than this? Like this caricature of the sleazy, white-shoed, plaid-coated buffoon who thinks he's God's gift to women, who actually is seen by everyone in the context of the show as the buffoon he is. He's not actually a ladies' man. He is a henpecked husband when you get to meet Edie McClurg and see what his home life is like. So I think that the, the, the yes, the, the Herb Tarlick character commits what now is, is obviously and appropriately considered inappropriate, which is he's hitting on a coworker. Now, he's not Jennifer's boss. She's a coworker. Uh, but there are other storylines where the coworkers date each other. But yes, he subjects her to an unending and unceasing amount of come-ons. But Jennifer is always the person in power. She is always the person who has the agency over him and indeed really over most situations that pr- are presented to her. I get what you're saying about that. I, you know, I think it is of its time. So, I mean, I have the ability to look at it as of its time, but I, but I, I know what you're saying. I think any episode where we see Herb in a, in uh, doing a, a sales pitch, uh, his interactions with Les and the other characters in the back office, he's excellent. For me, it's hard to laugh um, at the sexual harassment parts. And I realize you need to see it in the context of the time. And I have no doubt that this kind of thing went on exactly as it's, as it's mm-hmm. shown in the episodes. I just find it, I find it for me personally, it's too hard to watch. And so mm-hmm. I have to give them, I have to give the Herb Tarlick, not the Frank Bonner, a, a sideways arrow. He, even with Jennifer, brilliantly thwarting his buffoonery at every and all opportunity. Uh, in regard to that, I think you're going to get letters. Why? I just feel like, like the, uh, the, I mean, what to me, well, let me, let me, let me tease this out to me. What the sit, what the situation is doing is it's turning on its head. The norm, which is sleazy salesman hits on hot receptionist. It turns that around by having the receptionist be the smartest person in the situation, not the sleazy sales guy. The sleazy sales guy is completely disempowered at every step of the turn by her. Now, I'm not debating the semiotics of the work environment in 1978 as portrayed on a fictional sitcom, but I think to me, that's part of the kind of countercultural feel of the show is that to me, it turns that construct around and shows him to be the buffoon that he is. It doesn't use it to sort of show that it's cool uh, or that it's, you know, it obviously never works for Herb. So he's always a buffoon in every situation. He's, there's no situation in which Herb is shown to be a good guy, except as you pointedly noted, those few times when he gets what he thinks he wants and then actually kind of a better side of Herb emerges when confronted with Jennifer, right? Who he professes to desire above all things. So I I don't know. That's how I see it. Yeah. I just feel like the problem is that 
they're making it funny. They're trying mm-hmm. to make it funny, and it's not funny. That's my. Well, well, well the, that's my. The issue. funny, but the funny part is her dismissal of him, not him doing it. The joke is always on her. Like the yeah. la- like, if you look at a scene where he's hitting on on Jennifer, right? The laugh, the laughs will will progress as follows. Herb enters the lobby, fixes his tie, sprays breath freshener, does whatever kind of you know sleazy guy telegraphing an actor can do. Uh, that gets a little chuckle. He he approaches Jennifer and hits her with a Herb Tarlick pickup line. That gets a chuckle. Jennifer shuts him down. That gets the biggest laugh. Like that's the progression of all every scene you're going to watch where he hits on her. That's the laugh progression, and she gets the biggest laugh. So to me, if I do the math of sitcom laughs, that's where the power lies. Right? The power lies in her dismissal of him. I think that you are not wrong in your math. I'm telling you how I respond to it emotionally. Okay. Let's move on to something I think we both agree with. You're much more restrained to your credit in the use of the double up arrow. Yes. This this is the only time you gave someone a double up arrow in your list Mm -hmm. uh, where I think I did it sort of wildly indiscriminately. That's, that's us in a nutshell, really. You know, (laughs) Les Nesman, Richard Sanders. What can you say about this character? When Genius. I again, this is another one. When I was a kid, <laughs> I didn't get it. I just thought he was the nerd in the office. And watching it decades later, you realize uh, <laughs> how uh, carefully constructed. Oh my god! Character is how well controlled <laughs> he is. Again, a, a different kind of physical comedy than necessarily the mm. uh, the Mister Carlson type. I'll go back for a second to what I told you about watching this. Uh, with Dr. C, my husband, and him seeing it for the first time and not knowing anything about any of these characters and his description of Les Nesman as the MVP of this show. Mm, absolutely. Good uh, assessment. Yeah, he just is, he is so right on with his comedic timing, his oh my God. looks, yeah. I, well, his looks, I mean his facial expressions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he is he is there even in episodes that are lesser, if you will, small L. He's the best thing in the show. I agree. I mean, Richard Sanders, genius, brilliant actor. The character has so many little funny nooks and crannies. His uh, anti-communism, his excessive patriotism, unexpected kind of nerd turns for the Les Nesman character, right? He always has a Band-Aid or a bandage which is meant to indicate his his clumsy inability not to hurt himself doing everyday life things, right? Mm-hmm. One episode, the bandage is on the top of his hairline. The other episode, it's on his finger. I mean, that's such a brilliant, hilarious touch. And I think, I think they say that Richard Sanders just kind of brought that in and started doing that. Well, it started, um, in the, they were doing the pilot and uh, a light fixture fell from, uh, <laughs> uh, fell on his head. And he had to be taken to the emergency room in the middle. I don't know if it was a rehearsal or a taping, but uh, when they came back to do uh, his parts in the taping, he had a Band-Aid on his, uh, if you go back and watch the, if you go back and watch the pilot episode, there's a Band-Aid on Les's forehead through the whole episode. And then it became a running gag for them to, uh, 
to always have a bandage somewhere on his body that was visible during the episode with no explanation of why he was wearing a bandage. It used to really throw me off when I was a kid. I couldn't, I, again, I couldn't ever, I was like, what's wrong with the guy that he's always got a bandaid on? He is so good. The writing for Les Nesmith is also, I think, some of the funniest and sharpest writing in the series. Uh, his his radio reports, his news. He's just so original and hilarious and uh, gets a lot of the biggest laughs. I think you're right. I mean, you could argue he's the star of the whole show. I mean, you can't have it without Les Nesman. Yeah. He's the Spock of KRP. <laughs> like other people may get top billing, uh-huh. but he's, he's the character I think everyone uh, uh, fell in love with. And some of the throwaway writing around his hog reports and things of that is so sharp and so funny. It would not be out of place on, you know, a Saturday night live of its era or a national lampoon article of its Lara. Like there's some really, really funny stuff for less. Right. And as you mentioned before, where Hugh Wilson would allow uh, some of the actors to get involved with the show, uh, I guess, Less uh, Richard Sanders had a, a writing partner, and the two of them uh, wrote mm-hmm. some of the some of the episodes, especially ones where Les was featured. And, and I think they mentioned a couple times that uh, someone uses the word like a Teutonic uh, strength that Richard Sanders had about his the ideas that he and his writing partner had. Like he wasn't brooking any discussion over what they were doing with the character in episodes that he wrote which I think is so funny that like clearly the actor, and I've literally never seen Richard Sanders in anything other than KRP. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know what he sounds like in an interview, uh-huh. unlike Tim Reed or Howard Hessman uh, or even Gary Sandy, you know, or Lonnie Anderson. Like I know how all these other people sound and talk from just doing, but I've never seen tape of Richard Sanders and I don't want to. Uh, I just want him to forever be Les Nesman, which he is. <laughs> One of the most original sitcom character creations in television history. He's I agree. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So we both agree uh, a big thumbs up for KRP. I wish that it was easier for people to watch. Now, all of season one is on iTunes, but no other seasons are available to stream officially. But in the original series, they used real period music for the DJs to be playing on the radio station. So it's a little jarring. And you can notice this, I think when you watch certainly some of the episodes that are available where the music has been replaced because the way music licensing works in television is you have a certain duration, uh, a, a, a number of years in which you are licensing this music and for which use they might have signed a music license, which allowed them to use Blue Oyster Cult, Pink Floyd, you know, really everything but things like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. But other than that, they played like real music and they're credited with actually creating popularity for some songs. I think Heart of Glass from Blondie, I saw mentioned as a song that particularly took off after it was used just on the show. But of course, those licenses run out and licenses of the era did not address things like home video or DVD or syndication or later streaming. So you have a thicket of problems, which also befell other series. Moonlighting is another example that featured a lot of period music and rhythm and blues music uh, that was only licensed for 
the specific use and has hampered the release of the episodes in a more official format since then. This has also befallen KRP. And I think most of that was ameliorated by this Shout Factory uh, taking on the series because Shout Factory was founded by people who were in the music business and understand music licensing. And apparently they've gone back and relicensed all of the, or as much of the original music, which I've read could be 80 to 85, maybe even 90% of the original music has been, has been put back into the shows and the original dialogue replaced because in order to take the music out, they had to, in some cases, use other actors to dub new dialogue. That's something I would be interested in getting because I think that's a whole element of the show that we're not really able to watch either on Apple or on the YouTube channel that I want to point out you directed me to. I did not find that on my own. The illegal pirating of the episodes that you directed me to, Richard. Yes. Uh, does not feature the original music. So those are kind of the hacked up versions. And that's kind of hampered, I think, the show's ability to be seen currently. Yeah. I have a, This kind of also kind of dovetails with your concerns about the, the quality of the show that you talked about, particularly at the beginning. Yes. You know, we've been watching the shows at home and Dr. C is like, why is this edited so bad? Mm. There are, I was telling you that there are scenes where, where we sort of jump from mm. one spot in the office to another spot in the office mm-hmm. of WKRP, where all of a sudden characters are in one room or, you know, move from one room to the other. And it's not clear how much time has passed. Mm-hmm. And I tried to explain to Dr. C, I said, I said, I think that there are scenes missing here. I think we've got transition yes. scenes where maybe there was, maybe there was, they were doing something like an exterior shot of the mm-hmm. office and they had music laid in and they had to take that out because they couldn't clear the song or something like that. And then his answer to me was, well, maybe it's just bad. No, maybe. I think, I think you're right. I mean, I noticed that in the Who episode, the concert trampling episode, particularly, uh-huh. there's a very jarring cut from them all going off to attend the Who concert, which of course in real life was the source of the death of 11 concert goers due to festival slash general admission seating. And the show very admirably tackles this topic and did a very, very good episode about it. But the show jumps from them leaving to go to the show. And then it's kind of like, we're in the aftermath and they're all just shell-shocked by what happened. It feels to me like that's a place where maybe we heard some period Who music, maybe a ballad was played uh, over some visuals or even over some dialogue in order to convey this moment. And I think that is definitely why those feel so choppy and weird. I think they just had to hack out entire scenes that had music playing over them. And I think, and Hugh Wilson says, you know, they would use music to, to communicate as you can. So they would play cuts of music that are meant to indicate what's going on uh, with the character. It would be really interesting to watch the Shout Factory DVDs. I'm definitely going to add that to my collection because I think the show is worthy of being on anyone's shelf. I would just say that, you know, to any of any of the listeners here who are going back to revisit these episodes, depending on where you get it, um, you could be seeing some choppy, like you said, some some episodes that are a little chopped up, and it may have more to do with licensing issues than with the quality of the show. I did want to talk a little bit about um, a couple of the things I put on my list, which we didn't talk about. The, t- the famous turkey episode. This, I, I am afraid I have to give a, a, a down arrow to oh. upon, upon revisiting. Now, How dare you? 
I know. Hot take. This is probably the most famous, well, not probably, it's the most famous episode of KRP. This is the episode where the big guy feeling left out from the new stuff that's going on in the station due to the new appearance and influx of characters like Andy Travis and Venus and Johnny Fever, et cetera. He comes up with his own brilliant promotion, which is based on a real life event. Everyone always says that Hugh Wilson became aware of either through his experiences at an Atlanta radio station, or he also conversely says he heard it took place maybe in Texas, uh, where uh, a radio station tried to hand out live turkeys to people, to view, to listeners for Thanksgiving, uh, but the turkeys can't fly. And they, of course, in the immortal words of Les Nessman, hit the ground like bags of wet cement. <laughs> so, I hadn't watched this episode in a number of years. It gets shared every year around Thanksgiving, around the holidays. It's, you know, people will speak to the universal brilliance of the episode. Yes, I sent you the video of Gary Sandy. Gary Sandy, yes. He introduces it at a special repeat. Hi, I'm Gary Sandy. You know, of all the shows we've done on WKRP in the first three seasons, not one show ever generated the amount of mail, the amount of interest, as a show we did our very first season. It was called Turkeys Away. So we kind of thought you might like to see it again. It's about Thanksgiving. So naturally, we've chosen the Christmas season to show it to you. Happy holidays. Drums, please. Anyway, I sit down and I watch this episode. I'm like, okay, I am prepared to see one of the best written episodes of KRP, one of the best directed episodes of KRP. And the truth of the matter is, uh, the first two thirds of the episode are completely inconsequential and boring and poorly written. And the final scenes, the last two scenes where Les Nessman, Richard Sanders delivers his iconic Hindenburg inspired narration of the carnage of the turkeys being dropped from a plane, which is a wrinkle they added for the show. The original promotion apparently involved them throwing them from a truck which went went, went as bad as you could expect, but it wasn't dropping from a plane. Now, that part of the show, that Les Nessman is absolutely genius. It's brilliant writing. It's brilliant acting. It is edited brilliantly. It's a helicopter, and it's coming this way. A helicopter? It's flying something behind it. I can't quite make it out. It's a large banner, and it says, uh, Happy W-K-R-P. What a sight, ladies and gentlemen, what a sight. The copter seems to be circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's uh, a dark object. Uh, perhaps a skydiver plummeting to the earth from only 2,000 feet into the air. No parachutes yet. Those can't be skydivers. I can't tell just yet what they are, but... Oh, my God, they're talking! Johnny, can you get this? Oh, they're crashing to the earth right in front of my eyes! They just went to the windshield of a parked car! This is terrible. The cars running around, pushing each other? Oh, my goodness! Oh, the humanity! Turkeys are hitting the ground like sacks of wet cement. <laughs> Folks, 
inside. I don't know how much longer the, the crowd is running for their lives. I think I'm going to step inside. I can't stay out here and watch this any longer. No, I can't go in there. Are you there? Les isn't there. <clears throat> Thanks for that on-the-spot report, Les. <laughs> you just tuned in. The Pinedale Shopping Mall has just been bombed with live turkey. <laughs> Film at 11. And the bravery of saving the most famous line in the history of the show as God is my witness. I swear I thought turkeys could fly. They say that until the, the, after the show is over, there's a little moment in every KRP where there's, where the episode concludes. And that's when Gordon jump delivers the brilliant, brilliant closing line of this episode. So my contention is it's a brilliant scene with Richard Sanders. And it's a brilliant scene with the big guy delivering that, but everything leading up to it is just the most contrived bullshit and is really not a fun episode to watch until those two things. So it's just a fascinating thing to think that this is the most famous episode of this show. There are many other episodes I would point you to that are much more consistently well-written and performed all the way through the episode, but things being what they are, this is the iconic moment in the series, and I don't take anything away from that specific moment. I just don't think it holds up particularly well as an episode before that. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about other episodes, again, that either have a, a topical moment or a dramatic moment. We talked about the uh, Venus Venus as a deserter, the Who concert. Mm -hmm. uh, but for, And those are well-known and popular episodes. But for whatever reason, <laughs> this one with the turkeys, maybe because it's holiday-oriented, uh, this is the one that everyone has seen or thinks they've seen. Uh, and... I think it's a funny episode. I don't, um, I'm not bored with it in the way that you were, but if you didn't have the, the two final scenes with Les mm -hmm. Nessman, the MVP of the show, mm -hmm. delivering that, uh, that, that report from the shopping mall. And then the scene where he comes back from the shopping mall and his, uh, glasses are sort of out of yes. order. And he has this great line where he <laughs> said, there's something like, things got a little bit weird after that yeah uh or something to that effect yeah. if you didn't have those two scenes then this would just be an average episode absolutely there's all this keeping all the action off screen absolutely brilliant so it deserves it for that alone the scenes where where johnny and venus and andy are in the radio studio mm -hmm. and Les is doing yes. the narration remote and you're watching their reactions to his narration, but you can't uh, see what's going on. It's just, yes. it's just brilliant TV. It's, it's brilliant. It is brilliant, brilliant TV. It, I keep, it reminds me of National Lampoon magazine of the time. I mean, that kind of like that hilariously kind of dark humor, the death of all these turkeys, the splatting like bags of wet cement. This is writing that's really sharp and edgy. And I think that the show was successful with probably stoners, teenagers, and <laughs> radio DJs. Now, let's remember, like now it's almost, it's impossible to remember a time 
when the DJ and your local station was an important or well-known or famous figure. But I mean, when we grew up, certainly where I grew up, I mean, I could, I could run off still a list of the personalities on WPLR. You're listening to WPLR New Haven, 99.1 FM. I'm getting out of here. I'll see you back tomorrow night as usual, 6 p.m. I'm Stone Man. Whatever you're doing, have fun doing it. If it's just a little bit illegal, don't you get caught. See you tomorrow at 6. And you may see Whether it was the Lich, the Wigmaster, Tom Bass on and on and on, these guys were stars. I mean, these guys came out to introduce uh, concerts. I remember going to concerts where like the Lich came out and introduced the cars or whatever it was. I mean, he was a star. Like he, that's where you got music. This is before MTV. So that has to be mentioned too. You know, this was a different time. And that's a good segue to the movie FM, which you, which you recommended, uh, which I hadn't seen since high school. It started with the Crystal Age. to the golden age and now welcome to the solid platinum age good morning los angeles it's great to be a winner and aren't we all and this is fm the motion picture that takes you inside your radio to the sound of the hot country band music shuffling on the dance floor sound this is mother on Juice Guy FM, Los Angeles. Eric, Eric Swan. What it is, is this. We're the number two station in the second largest market in the United States, and we're not making any money. For those of you who never knew, for those of you who've never forgotten, for those of you who really don't give it. <laughs> the competition might be putting on the Ronstadt concert, but Juice Guy is going to steal it and air it live on FM. <laughs> Even if the story isn't completely true, it's only because you wouldn't believe what really happens. We got the best dance station there is. That's not the point. What is? Profits. What do they care about our audience? What do they care about music? All they care about is money. The entire staff of Q Sky, Los Angeles, are now going on strike. FM, featuring the music of America's hottest rock stars, with special concert appearances by Linda Ronstadt and Jimmy Buffett. Are you listening to Q Sky, my little darlings? FM, coming at you soon at the speed of sound. And it's kind of a famous movie in the sense that it has one of the most famous and best-selling soundtracks of any film, uh, even though the film itself is widely considered not to hold up as a piece of storytelling. But I, I loved it. I mean, I was a big, I, I mean, of course, I'm a sucker for this era. So the lavishness with which it was filmed in this kind of like widescreen, you know, almost, uh, I don't know if it's Technicolor or Cinemascope, but it's got this brilliant widescreen uh, comp frame composition. 
the guy that directed it clearly was getting like his first shot to direct a film and he was going all in. So it, it, it has such a great over the top seventies ness and the lived in feel of the station is very akin to a more dramatic version, maybe a more realistic version of the KRP studios. Uh, so I loved it. I, that's another film that's not really available probably also for licensing purposes. You think it's because of the music? I would think it'd have to be. I mean, it has a wall-to-wall soundtrack of a lot of very well-known rock hits of the day. So I can't even imagine it's licensable. Although I guess, you know, the movie itself was kind of put together by Irving Azoff at the time, who I then think took his name off of it for some reason. So I think it, it was either, it had the involvement of some record label or, studio that owned a record label or something at the time, but I didn't see that it was available streaming anywhere. I had to also get another pirated link from you before the FBI visits your home and shuts right. down all of your. <laughs> Was it, uh, is it on DVD? That I didn't check. That's it probably is. Um, I'd have to check that. Yeah. You can buy, Oh my God. It says, uh, and I am Amazon DVD for 66 99. So it must be, mm. uh, well, that means it's out of print. Yeah. But I really liked, I mean, is it the tightest story? No, but there's enough to keep you watching. And I think we both gave a arrow up to star Michael Brandon, who I'd never heard of before watching FM, who's the lead character. He's great. Never, I've never heard of him, never seen him in anything. <laughs> I went back and looked at his, uh, his IMDB page and there was very little that was even familiar to me. He was great. Go back and watch the scene where he is trying to uh, explain how the DJs, his DJs, are going to react when they oh, hear that brilliant. they have to put on uh, commercials for the army. And brilliant. then he starts doing imitations of the actor's characters. Genius. Yeah. Playing the Andy Travis. The Andy Travis character. <laughs> yeah. And he's... make a joke about that because... I had never seen this movie until just when we were uh, doing the background on on taping this podcast. And I, to borrow from your from your phraseology, I was like today years old before I found out <laughs> that FM and WKRP were not somehow related to each other. Right. I just always assumed that depth, that KRP was something some network people saw FM or like, oh, we ought to turn that into a TV show. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happened. These these projects, this movie, this FM movie, and the AM WKRP were generated completely separate from each other, but happened to become both come out in 1978. KRP is an AM station. Yes. Which which strikes me still as a little strange as a choice. But I guess is that part of the choice that it's like. We're trying to do rock music on AM radio. Yeah, because you're supposed to understand that it's been e- an easy listening station oh, okay. since the 1950s, right. and <laughs> that old people, uh, you know, an older generation tunes in to hear Lawrence Welk, and suddenly it's a rock station at you know buried on the AM dial. Okay, I guess I understand that. So FM is set at a real FM station in Los Angeles. And it, it is a brilliant piece of production design. I mean, the studio, I don't know, I, I didn't look enough into the making of FM, uh, but the production design is amazing if it's a set. It's incredibly set dressed and it's inhabited by a very believable set of radio station characters 
and I think it's Martin Mull's very first film performance. And he is great as the, as the Eric Swan character. It's a really weird movie. It's, it's very much of its period, but I really enjoyed it. And it's also noted that, you know, FM features a couple amazing performances. You particularly were today years old when you realized that, you know, Jimmy Buffett isn't just a purveyor of cheesy restaurants. <laughs> And that actually he had some rock credibility back in the day, which is very really, admirably shown in the film. I thought he was, I thought he, I, I've always been a, uh, a uh, Jimmy uh, Buffett uh, enemy. And I got to say, <laughs> he, uh, he was, he was, re- he was really good at that moment. In he the, commands the stage. Film. He had something, you know, he, yeah. you can, the thing that the empire is built on today is evident in his performance in FM. You understand why he became a thing. I think it's hard for people now to understand, wait, this all came about because uh, of a song like Wasting Way in Margaritaville? Like that's how he's a billionaire and he has a restaurant and a hotel empire? Like, no, it came about because, you know, his rock show was doing something very different from the time. And he was always about kind of presenting a funny, feel-good rock and roll concert performed at the highest level. And you can see that there. Yeah. He had a good I, band. I was today years old. My version of your Jimmy Buffett experience was Linda Ronstadt in this movie. Wow. What a star. It's just a stunning <laughs> piece of concert footage. Uh, I mean, maybe that, I guess I just missed like the Linda Ronstadt rock era entirely, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but man, what a star, what a performance. And then you go in and you just read about this career. It's just unbelievable what she has accomplished before, I guess, sadly, I don't know whether she has MS or something, but something something has taken her from her performative life. Uh, it's some kind of, I don't know if it's throat cancer or some mm-hmm. kind of throat damage. But I mean, man, she was a creative force to be reckoned with for... I don't know, nigh on 40, 40 years in the entertainment mm-hmm. business mm-hmm. Um, across all kinds of genres of music and delivers just an incredible powerhouse performance in this movie. Somehow the film makes these real concert scenes actually feel of a piece with the film itself, which is not always the case, right? Like it's, um, it's, it's really well done and woven into the film. So I'm going to seek that movie out on DVD, even if I have to pay $66 for it, because... <laughs> I would like to see it in in a clearer resolution than I was able to on YouTube. Yeah. So I enjoyed that as well. Richard, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me. Yes. I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. Cincinnati, WKRP. Well, now we know where to find you. <laughs> the people that you, the people who have letters regarding your- uh, My Lonnie Anderson takes? Your, yeah, your sexual harassment takes nowhere to track My, my support for Herb Tarlick's sexual <laughs> harassment, yes. Well, we get letters. Well, if I get them, I will respond in kind. Absolutely. Well, uh, this was a good call. And I, I think that your initial inspiration for this was the death of Howard Hessman. And he- was somebody that I liked before this, before reviewing this show. And um, his arrow has gone even higher since getting a chance to see it. Again. Absolutely. Rest in peace, Howard Hessman. And more power to people who are still at it, like Tim Reed. 
Enjoy uh, diving into KRP if this episode has made you curious. Check out FM and we will catch you next time on the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. Thanks as ever for listening. And Rick, thank you as always for putting in all of the time and the research that helps make your episodes particularly chock full of knowledge and wisdom and entertainment value. I, I always appreciate being invited back. Thank you again. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. <laughs>